Stone Chats, Small Talks About Homeschooling, presented by Wildwood Curriculum, a Charlotte Mason education for all. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Stone Chats, a podcast of the Wildwood Curriculum. We're hosting a live question and answer session today, and so we have a few people joining us, um, Emily and Alicia, and I noticed there's a little bit of um, commenting in the Facebook group, so we might see some more people coming in as we go along. And we just had somebody else hop on, too. Yeah. My name's Jennifer. I'm a homeschooling parent, long time. I have five children, uh, ranging in ages between 14 and 23. They have mostly been homeschooled all the way, so um, I sometimes forget what it's like to have little ones, but I'm really in the throes of what it's like to have children in the upper forms. And I am Marjorie. I have been homeschooling since 2001. I have... um, three stepchildren, one of them who moved in with us when he was 15. He's now 30 and lives down the road from us. Then he's had his third baby on the way. And then um, we have a 23-year-old that I homeschooled all the way through. And our current eight-year-old, who was a surprise. So we're starting all over with her. With Miriam. I'm Miriam. I have two. I'm just starting homeschooling. We did Walter for Mason. I have a nine-year-old son and an eight-year-old daughter. Awesome. All right. So let's start off with who has questions? I have a couple of questions from the Facebook group for people who couldn't be here today. Go ahead, Alicia. I'm sorry. I didn't have a list of questions prepared. I'm hoping to learn a lot from you all about Charlotte Mason. And I, I have trouble with organization and I'm just excited to learn from you. I think we all have problems with organization. I think that after, you know, in all my years of speaking at homeschool conferences, one of the first questions is, you know, how do I teach them to read? And the next question is how do I keep the house clean? Yeah. We underestimate the amount of work that comes with homeschooling our kids. I mean, really we're home with them 24 seven and not only are we just home, but we're engaging in a variety of activities that require a variety of mental energy from us and lots of supplies. And especially in the Charlotte Mason curriculum, you know, we have a lot of handwork. We try to have a lot of uh, creative time, a lot of outdoor time. There's just lots going on. And I, I think that for me, part of the journey has been coming to accept that my home is not at the same standard as my friends whose children are in school full time. It's, you know, not what I would want it to be, but it is what it is because in the order of priorities, it's, it's just lower on the list. So not that that's helpful, but hopefully encouraging. (laughs) Right. You know, when I was working, um, my house was cleaner. So part of that, was because I was super focused when I was home because my hours were so much shorter. Like, so I need to get done, get done, get done with things. Um, I was not a nice mom when I was working in homeschooling. And I didn't realize that I was not a nice mom until I quit. And then I realized that um, it wasn't my kids that were the problem. It was, it was me that I was completely stressed out all the time. So I had a really short fuse. Um, but also part of being away from home and working 
was that without anybody there to mess up the house, the house doesn't get messier during the day. And since we're home all day, um, you know, like Jennifer said, it just, it gets messier. The kids do stuff, they play. And, and if you're, if all you're doing is cleaning up or um, expecting them to clean up after themselves, I think you lose a lot of the wonderful opportunities. So it's a, it's a balancing act because we don't want to live in filth, you know, <laughs> and we don't want to live in a complete clutter, but um, we also don't want to spend all of our time cleaning. And that's one of the things that I try to explain to my husband when he comes home and, and he's been gone for, for all day and he looks at the house and it's not as clean as he would like. And, um, you know, I say, what, what would you prefer me to do? I, we decided that we were going to homeschool. So part of my day is taken up with homeschooling and I'm working on Wildwood, which takes time. And even just doing that takes time away from homeschooling Lexi. So then in between all that, I still have to fit in the doctor's appointments and the eye doctors and the grocery shopping and the preparing food and, and then cleaning on top of that. And something has to give, you know, I, I honestly, I don't do anything as well as I would like to. I don't give an, as much time to any part of my life that I would like to. Again, I don't know if that's helpful, but, <laughs> but um, you know, as far as scheduling, it, so I've been homeschooling since 2001 and I still don't feel like I have a great handle on scheduling because I, so every year I try to do it the same way, right? I think this year it's going to work. This year going to make this kind of scheduling system work. So this year, I decided to completely throw all that away. Obviously, it hasn't worked for 14 years. <laughs> so um, I'm trying something completely different. I don't know if it's going to work, but we'll see. I had been, what I've been doing before is making my own schedule. I don't know if you're familiar with literature-based curriculums. Um, the very first curriculum that I used was Sunlight, and they put their weekly schedule in a grid format. Um, and it's the same kind of format that Build Your Library uses. So I would just make up my own schedule that way. And, you know, within like two, three weeks, I was behind on some things and um, I never felt like I could catch up. And then I would just give up entirely on that. And then I would just try to figure out every week what I wanted to do. And it just caused a lot of stress. So that's the system that I'm going to get rid of this year because it obviously doesn't work. And I'm going to try another one. Um, and so what I'm doing is I'm just listing out all of the, so for some of the books that you just read the next thing, I'm, I'm not doing anything with that. But for things that have specific projects or lessons, like for Sloyd and drawing with children, um, I'm breaking them down into small pieces and then I'm putting those pieces in order. And then what my plan is, um, is that every week I'm going to fill out my chart I have a planner it's like a teacher planner actually somebody suggested it in the group a couple of years ago when I bought it um, but you can I'm going to plan out my week based on what comes next on each of those subject areas so I'll never be behind because I'll just be using individual large sheets I mean like individual sheets of paper so for example I'll have a paper that says Sloyd and then I'll list the project, what I need to do for 
that like the piece of paper that I'd need to have for that project, like a six by six piece of paper and the page number that it will be on. So that then when I'm filling out that week's chart in my planner, in my lesson planner, I'll be able to put Sloyd box or whatever I'm doing that week and the page number and um, I'll have hopefully <laughs> I will be able to get like that six by six sheet of paper prepared ahead of time um, and so then I'll just check off as I go each individual sheet and I am hoping that that works better but I don't know we'll see and then you know after three weeks in six weeks in I might try to change that but that's sort of what I do. I schedule or um, I'm more very routine with five children. I've always maintained a really strong routine. I'm actually struggling with routine now because I'm not the person in charge of the routine. I have uh, four young adults in my home and they were all on their own schedules and they have their own timing. And so I'm actually struggling to get a routine in place because it's not, not just me, but I'm not in charge of them anymore. But for years past, we always had a routine. So there was always kind of a you know, the routine we do to get to breakfast and then the after breakfast and, hey, Lori, how are you? She told us she was going to be picking cherries today. The routine that happens after, which was mostly homeschooling, I did homeschooling in the morning and that was, we always did math first. Math was my first subject because I knew it was our hardest one. So if I didn't hit it first, then we would just avoid it, all of us. And then I usually did some uh, English-based, and then we usually did something fun. I left afternoons for handwork and time outside, and those were the same. I basically had to have the same routine every day. So if I had a rotating, I would have, um, like my history and science were often rotating. So there would be a history, there would just be a history or science slot, and then I would just do whatever's next. I'm not very good at sitting down weekly. I would love to be, and I'm trying to learn to be. But for me, a lot of it was just having the book and knowing that oh, we're going to do science today because we did history yesterday. So let's just pick up the science book. Everyone pick up their science book, however we were doing it. And we do whatever was next. And I stopped having, I didn't even actually have um, page numbers that I would aim for. We would just aim to read the book for whatever time or section that it felt comfortable to read the book. And then everyone would do a narration and then we would move on. I just needed it to be really simple and really easy. And I needed to know that if we missed history today, then that was okay. We'd catch history in two days or next week, or it would come up again. So just kind of this rotating, yeah, a rotating routine, I guess. So that's another thing that you mentioned there that I wanted to um, emphasize or address is that it's okay not to not to get all the pages read in a term. So with Wildwood and with the PNEU programs, it'll say read pages 40 to 80 in this book, right? But don't feel like you have to stick to that. You don't want to do more than that necessarily. But if you don't get that much, um, say that would be about three to four pages a week in most books. But some of the books are harder. Sometimes things happen. Um, so if you can only get one or two pages read, don't feel like you have to make up those other pages later on in the week or later on in the day or that you can't move on until you've read the amount for that term. It was in, oh gosh, I don't remember where I read it. There was one, one of the primary sources. I think it was Elsie Kitching who said it, was that it's better to not get everything completed in the term than to um, overload your kids. And that's not a direct quote. But remember that 
uh, with a Charlotte Mason education, it's not just about the books. The books are actually a very small part of the Charlotte Mason education. It's, um, it's everything. And if you do too much with the books, because you're trying to cram those books in when it's taking you longer, whether you, that's because you have five kids or that's because everybody was sick for two weeks or because you went on a vacation to the Grand Canyon, which I live in Arizona and I have never been to the Grand Canyon, by the way. Um, but it's better if, if you try to cram in those books, then you're pushing other things out also. So it's, it's okay not to get a certain number of pages read every day. That's what I wanted to say there. <laughs> All right. Did that help, Felicia? Yes, very much. Thank you so much. Made me feel better. And, um, you know, I feel like I'm expected to do everything perfect and, and so much every day. And it's hard. That made me feel better. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think any of us does it perfectly. Well, and I think that one of the beautiful things about Charlotte Mason and um, her approach is it's not about getting a certain set of things done, right? It's not about the book. It's not about the facts in the book. It's not about finishing the book. It's about our interaction with the material. And that doesn't that's almost immeasurable in many ways. So that at the end of the year, even if you've only done a handful of pages, if the interaction with the material in that handful of pages has been rich and deep and challenging, then education will have happened. Right. I think it's in book three where she writes, it's not how much he knows, but how much he cares. Mm. Yeah. It's building those re that relationship with the material. Miriam, did you have anything to add? Oh, I just said I love that. So I, <laughs> I was thinking during the, the planning, you know I'm a planner, and then we never think that we plan, at least not most of it, but I love just writing it out. What I started doing was just recording what we did. Instead of planning beforehand, recording what we did after, that makes me feel a lot better, a lot less behind. Because instead of trying to meet a goal, we've already, that's our goal was to have a fun week. I've been doing that and liking that. You know, years ago, there was an online homeschooling planner sheet thing that I downloaded. I still have it on my computer. Um, and it had, at the top of it, it had homeschooling plans, and then plans was crossed out, and it said hopes. And I really liked that, that change and that mindset, mindset shift also of it's not, it's okay if we don't get all of our plans done because... It's really what we hope to do this week. It takes away some of the um, the stress, the expectation. Yeah, that's a better word. It takes away some of that expectation that we need to get it all done. All right, let's see. Hi, Rebecca. Do you have any questions? I don't. I'm just here for support. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, go ahead. I, I said I, I brought a friend. She just, Who'd you bring? Stephanie. She's interested in learning more about Charlotte Mason. Oh, awesome. Hello, Stephanie. So we have Kelsey and Emily and Nikki. Nikki is unmuted right now. Nikki, did you have any questions? Maybe Nikki can't hear. Yeah. There's also a chat box at the bottom of your Zoom window. Yeah, if you'd feel more comfortable just typing your questions in, you can, you can use that box. 
So we had a question this morning about uh, the term creative nonfiction and whether that might be a new um, expression for living books. I have never heard of that term. Yeah, I, I had heard about it because as um, like I'm a historian and so there's a lot of um, what we would call a literary nonfiction around a lot of historical figures. And so those are biographies that are often written as novels, even though they're factual or attempt to be factual. There's a fuzzy line here because there's a lot of biographies that are being fictionalized. And so they're adding extra material and um, ideology or filling in blanks. But generally speaking, a, a creative or literary nonfiction book is a work of nonfiction. So it's got the same level of research that we would expect in a nonfiction um, Oh, drawing a blank, like a research um, book, but it's written from a more literary or more creative perspective. Uh, a lot of new artists are actually introducing various modes as well as just written text. So using video and that to present nonfiction information, so facts in a more accessible mode to the entertainment culture, I guess. So this really is in a lot of ways a living book. What we're talking about is books written about nature or books written about space. I can think there's uh, one that my son read called Packing for Mars. She's a, a science journalist and she uh, has written these very lovely books. She's got one on funerals, I think, as well. So a look at these areas, but it's written in a in a very easily accessible, conversational sort of way. So it, it makes them easier to read. They're not so heavy. So, so if you're looking for living books, using the expression creative nonfiction can often help you find books that are written in more of that genre. But the question was whether they are the new living books. And I don't think they are because a living book is more than just a book written in a literary manner, right? A living book is a book that inspires great thoughts. It's well-written. It has rich and full sentences. It is, you know, creates visions in our heads. And that's very subjective in a lot of ways. So I think that um, introducing, knowing that this term is out there can help us when we're looking for books. It certainly can. But I don't think just because a book is listed in a publisher's um, idea of being a creative nonfiction means that it counts as a living book. Would you consider the Laura Ingalls Wilder books creative nonfiction or is that completely different? That would be fiction. I would say that's inspired fiction, inspired on real life. Because so much of it is, okay. I mean, even Wilder herself said that a lot of it was emphasized or changed to make the story better. That's good to know. Yeah, that's not a term I'd ever heard before. Yeah, I use, I use it when I'm trying to find, especially for the upper forms, because there aren't a lot of children's books. You know, I said on the Facebook group, I think that we're living in this this place where so much of what goes on in the public school system is testing and, and teaching of facts, wanting our kids to learn facts and regurgitate facts that I think children's nonfiction books are starting to reflect that they're all factoid based books, right? We're just throwing things at children and, and there isn't a lot of long form books written for children in the nonfiction subject areas. So you can look for creative nonfiction, but mostly what you're going to find is adults 
books. There's very, very little when you look for nonfiction for children. I know there's a publisher out there that publishes science books. They're attempting to even do picture books from a non-creative nonfiction point of view, which is, which is lovely. I love that they're trying to do that, but, but maybe this is a start. Maybe we'll see this growing because there's obviously a need for it. So there is a difference also between narrative and literary. I think a lot of people confuse the two. They think that as long as something is in a narrative form, then it's literary and it's, um, then it's a living book. But literary, narrative just means it's in a story form, but it doesn't have to be well-written. You know, the Magic Tree House. well, let's see, um, Junie B. Jones is narrative. I don't think anyone would consider Junie B. Jones to be literary quality. And, you know, there's nothing wrong specifically with Junie B. Jones, but it's, it's not literature. Literary quality has to do, like you said, with sentence length, um, vocabulary, how beautiful is the wording. Um, ooh, here's one for, from Stephanie. I'm just going to interrupt my own self here because I think this is a great question. Are living audiobooks available for dyslexic children? Jennifer. Oh, my entire homeschool is built on audiobooks. My my son especially, he has some severe learning differences and yeah, he does not read books. My others, I have those who choose not to because he has audiobooks. I have others that, you know, ended up choosing audiobooks over reading. My oldest who is a avid or was an avid reader loves listening to audiobooks. Audio, yeah, my, my home is full of audiobooks. And I, I confess, sometimes when I couldn't find what I wanted, I recorded a book. So my children got to listen to my own voice reading aloud. We also, I would say that read alouds were the core of my home all the way through. I still read aloud to my 14-year-old. I still read aloud a chunk of the upper forms books because I couldn't get audiobooks because I wanted to interact. I wanted to see what my son was absorbing. Yeah, it's just harder to find them. Certainly the older books, uh, LibriVox has anything that's in public domain, has often lots of versions, sometimes multiple readers, sometimes uh, dramatized versions. Um, I didn't, because it, it wasn't quite as available, but probably if I went back 10 years in time and Audible, Audible was available the way it is now, I probably would have, have had a subscription to Audible to make it easier. And I confess that I am constantly asking my library to buy product, you know, especially if I think that it's good quality and something that other parents would, I'm constantly asking. So even if it, if it ended up that we never got it for my kids, I like to think that my library would have it for other kids. So a living book has nothing to do with whether it's read with your eyes or if it's listened to because it's read by somebody else. Um, the living book has more to do with, is it literary quality? Meaning, what is the sentence structure? What's the vocabulary? Is the writing beautiful? Um, is it, and it doesn't have to be narrative. It well, it doesn't have to be in a story. A lot of people who are new to the method think that a living book is fiction, but actually most of the books that Charlotte Mason used were nonfiction. So it was written by an author who is passionate about his subject, usually written by one author, occasionally written by two, but not generally a committee like a textbook. When you get into a committee, then um, things get stripped down. Now, that does not mean that like an anthology would not be living because those are individual pieces written by individual authors. So I have, um, 
I'm looking on my bookshelf right now and I can't see it really. Oh, here it is. I have this book called A Natural History of the Sonoran Desert. And this is, as I live in the Sonoran Desert, in case you didn't figure that out. This has essays on all sorts of things um, from our area, desert soils, desert grasses, invertebrates, verticounts. And each one of these has is filled with essays written by naturalists. Um, and it was put together by the Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum, and it has multiple authors, but each article is only written by one person. So that kind of book, that is a living book because of the ideas, because of the language in it, um, but it's not... It wasn't written by a committee, and that's the difference there. When you when you get a textbook that you look in the front of it, and it has all the contributing authors, and it's like 20 authors, but they're not individual articles written by the, those individual 20 people. It's just like this committee of people that somebody wrote the original one, and then somebody else came in and changed this, and somebody else added this little bit, paragraphs here. Um, those are when you get into that committee. And then it gets stripped out. The language, the beautiful language tends to get stripped out of those in favor of just facts. Oh, we need to add this. We need to add this. So that's what that wanting to avoid multiple authors is about. And I think I just got a, a little off track here. So I'm going to go back. So we have a living book is literary quality. It's usually written by a single author who's passionate about his subject usually somebody who's knowledgeable and loves his subject. And it, they're usually also popular books or books written for a popular audience. Um, that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for super specialized books. We're not looking for books that are written by, uh, written for PhD or grad students. We're looking for books that give a general knowledge base. Um, and Usually these people who can write literary quality and who are passionate about their subjects will draw you in. So even if you are not initially interested in the subject, is the writing so good that you just get sucked into it? That's what we're looking for. And that doesn't matter if that's um, a, if it's on audio or not. Usually they will be originally published in book form, but some of them like A Little History of the United States, which is new. Those will also be on audio. So I don't know, maybe a little tangent there. But I just wanted to say that living has nothing to do with the with whether it is an audio book or not. Well, and I think living in the multimedia age, and I know this is controversial and probably not the place to go into it, but I think that there are other media resources that are going to count as living. I think we're in the age of there are some beautiful living documentaries out there, some um, lots of living films. And, and, and what you have said applies, right? That they're of a literary quality or the equivalent to what literary is in the, the cinephile world. You know, they're, they're done by people who are passionate about conveying their message and their ideas, and they draw you in, even if it's a subject area you might not be excited about initially. I've watched some very odd YouTube documentaries that my kids send me about stuff and I just get sucked right in, partly because my kids know they can tell when something is good and I might appreciate it because we've spent so many years cultivating that appreciation for living resources. All right. Let's see. Anyone else? Let's go to Kelsey. Oh, it won't let me unmute her. Can you unmute her? 
Maybe she has to unmute herself. I'm just going to, Stephanie just said um, her um, daughter's speech pathologist uh, wants her to use audiobooks to catch up to grade level. Even when my son was capable, well, I don't, he's maybe capable of reading it grade level now, I still continue to provide him with audiobooks because, you know, sometimes what we want them to do is read and practice the skill of reading, but that's separate from the the skill of acquisition. So for me, there was a balance between providing him with resources that would engage his reading skills and allow for him to practice that skill and needing to provide him for books that would engage him in the subject area, which is why I depended on audiobooks even up into and high school and, and beyond. He uses audiobooks in university if he can. So also in that, um, you're probably not going to be able to use a pre-done curriculum because you're going to need to search out for audiobooks specifically. So while, for example, with Wildwood, um, many of our books that we chose are available on audio, but not all of them. So you would need to either read those aloud to your child, um, to her, or you would want to look for different books to substitute in that do have audio versions that are available, but that are also really high quality. Or, so you just make it. Yeah, or you may need to choose resources where if you want her to read where the reading level is lower. So you may need to swap out, you know, a resource from a higher form with a resource from a lower form so that she's able to, you know, practice reading uh, without being frustrated, being able to acquire the whatever information is in whatever resource you're doing without being frustrated about trying to acquire it. And there's nothing wrong with that either. All good skills. Yeah. Hey, Emily, do you have any questions? Um, right now I'm just soaking up information. I feel like we're not quite there yet, but I want to, you know, know all that I can so that we can be prepared. I have a very precocious five-year-old who has already taught herself. Um, and like, I'm really excited to start with her when she's ready for formal lessons, but also still trying to provide that quiet growing time. Yes. I think one of the, we just actually recorded a podcast on this a little, I think our last one that we did, um, we talked about that is the tendency to want to download information to our little ones because we feel like if they are asking for this, um, that means we need to give them information. But really what our job is, is to increase their sense of wonder and help them move along on that path, especially when they're young, because your kids are, are under six. Um, it's not about filling their heads with facts. It's about helping them to increase their observational skills without them knowing it. So you're not going to say, oh, we're going to go out on a nature walk and we're going to increase your observational skills now. Or, you know, you're going to go outside and, and play and when they bring, when they notice a bird um, and they ask, what kind of bird is that? Rather than saying, oh, that's a robin and let's go learn all about robins now. What you would want to do instead is you would say, oh, that's a beautiful bird. And then you might say, oh, look at how the beak is shaped. That's thinner or that's wider than that other one that we see, the brown one. Oh, look at how on the, on its breast it's. Um, it's orange and that other one that looks like it 
that one was a little bit more red, wasn't it? Oh, that is so neat. And then you sit and watch it for a while. So you're not giving them this information of, oh, that's a robin. And look at the red breast. That's how you can tell that it's a robin. And watch now how it turns its head and looks, um, looks like it's looking down and it's actually listening for, or maybe it just looks like it's listening for the worms. And then let's observe. We don't do it like that because that's just that giving information. And then our kids are also looking to us as the storehouse of information. And that's not what we want in a Charlotte Mason education. We want them to know that they are the ones that should be searching for the information. And we can help that along, but we don't want to be, um, Charlotte Mason called it uh, the personality of the teacher, the cult of the teacher. I forget what she called it, but basically you don't want them to rely on you as being the source of knowledge. Um, it's like when your kids go to public school or to a school and they think that their teacher knows everything. That's not what we want. I remember coming home from school from seventh grade and I used to talk about my English teacher and my dad would get so angry. He said, I am so sick of hearing about Mr. Miskelin. Um, but you know, and that's how I felt like he knew everything. Right. And that's not what we want for our kids. We don't, I mean, as parents, of course, we want our kids to feel like we know everything. Right. <laughs> but we don't want to put our, to set ourselves up in that position of we have the answer for them and all they have to do is ask us and we will tell them that we want to help them help them wonder and help them discover on their own yeah we want to keep their curiosity alive right like that's probably that's what that's what makes lifelong learners is to be curious about everything all the time and to ultimately know that we have the skills to find what find out about whatever we're curious about and if they're always coming to us for that um, information, then they're not exercising the, their own skills of curiosity. And so then sometimes it's kind of important. I, even with my young adults, they'll often ask me questions now. Well, why do you think that happened? You know, and I'll say, well, why do you think it happened? You know, and give them space to muse about it and not always, I, I mean, it's still hard because you spend so long giving your kids the answers in a lot of ways. Sometimes it's hard to take that step back and, and not provide the answer. Just let them sit with it for a while to figure out what they can. And not to the point of being overwhelmed, right? Like if they're really struggling or like sometimes my kids would ask me to, my mother always did this. I'd ask how to spell a word and she'd say, look it up in the dictionary. Right. right. You don't want to go to frustration. Exactly. I just wanted the word so that this thing that I was writing, I could get done because it was the writing part that was the important part, not the spelling part. And then my mother took me right out of it so that, you know, I had to go look up this word and, and lost it. So sometimes it's okay to give our kids an easy answer if that's not what's going to come in way of their curiosity, if the easy answer is going to promote the curiosity even more. But yeah, I think, and especially when we, we live in the world of Google now, right, where information is at our fingertips. And so there's some balance between always knowing the answers. Like even my kids will ask me and, and I find myself, oh, well, we'll look that up on Google and find the answer. But sometimes the wondering about it is just as important as the getting to it. Well, I wonder why that might be. Let's wonder. What are all the wondering ways? You know, why does, why does that bird's beak look differently than that bird's beak? Well, let's wonder about it. And then later on when we confirm that 
you know, why that might be, that's even more beautiful, I think, in a lot of ways than going directly to why, what is the answer to this question? You know, and that's also, Charlotte Mason talked about that um, for the younger years, especially that, well, from up to about age nine, that the books that they're reading, especially their natural history books, should be confirming what they've already observed for themselves. It shouldn't be, they shouldn't necessarily be reading about beavers if you they've never seen a beaver. They should be, if they're reading about crickets, then they could say, oh, so that's why they have that different back part, or that's why they were doing that. But so they've already observed for themselves, and now they're just adding on to their own knowledge that they've already gotten because of their own observations. Which is actually a very prevalent learning theory. It's called scaffolding. And it's the idea that we have to have a frame and that we attach new information onto the existing frame. And that there are all sorts of ideas about how we, you know, attach that information in new ways. But you can't just have something hanging out in the middle of nowhere. A new piece of information has to be attached to an existing piece of information in the brain. Did you have anything to add, Miriam? I feel like we're hogging the conversation. You both have way more experience. Yeah, I have some regret of answering. You know, all those questions that they ask, did instead of just letting them wonder. And I think it got to the point they would get the most enjoyment instead of actually observing the things. So once they had the answer, they'd be ready to move on instead of maintaining the observation. I, I regret that. Yeah. You know, in that pursuit of wanting to to have something to let your kid know because every everyone else especially if you're homeschooled they ask that you know children what do you know what have you learned so there's that in the back of your mind if they can say things that they learned it just yeah I didn't I didn't ruin them they still have wonder and they still have lots of years left to wonder that's right you know and even if you do it wrong I think we all have regrets. I don't know anybody who doesn't. I don't know any parent who doesn't have regrets about how they raise their kids. Um, Because that means, you know, at least some little things. Because that means we've learned, right? Right. Because the reason I have regret is because I now have information that I didn't have at that time. Because I'd like to think if I had that information, I would have made a different choice. But I now have information that that I didn't have. And so if I could go back, I would do things differently. That's what regret is. And honestly, I think that that's in some ways a beautiful thing. I love that, that, you know, I'm a better parent now than I was when my kids were younger because I've done all this learning and growing about being a parent. might suck for my kids in a lot of ways, but (laughs) hopefully it won't suck for any grandchildren I have because my kids have learned along with me in a lot of ways. Emily, did you have anything to add? No, but I appreciate hearing what your thoughts are. All right. Does anybody else have anything? If not, we'll go to some of the questions from the group. Well, there was a question about KISS grammar and whether... Um, That's your thing, Jennifer, because I have not used it yet. Um, so I'm hoping, I'm hoping sometime in August or early September to do a little bit of uh, intro work to help people KISS grammar because it really has been my favorite grammar. But it was kind of painless in a lot of ways because I didn't 
No, we didn't read. She asked if we read the longer stories before we did the work. And unless it was like, I know there's some exercises where he includes whole paragraphs from the books or stories that he's using. And we would read that, but we never read the larger book or story that the exercises were drawn from. I basically printed off whatever the page was for the day. And we did that exercise and it was over and done with. I, yeah, a lot of little people and I love grammar. So I enjoyed teaching grammar in the, um, the kids way. But yeah, I never made it more. It was never more than five or 10 minutes tops because I just wanted to be in and out, just touch on the concept and move on. And at the time I thought I should be doing more, honestly, but I just, I just didn't have time. There were more important things in my day. And so I kind of felt like if, Whoa, we did the, whatever the sheet was for the day or, you know, we did grammar, I think Tuesdays and Thursdays when they were, that we just hit on the one sheet and we talked about the one topic and we moved on. And I, I don't think I ever got through whatever workbook. I've mostly just used the, the one workbook he has for grade three. And then I, then I, used, I just reuse it every year until they got to, I think it's grade seven where he has the next complete workbook. And then I just reused that a couple of times we went through it. And I'm sure we didn't always hit everything, but yeah, I think, I think something made grammar. I don't know. It's hard to tell because I love grammar, right? But I think sometimes we make grammar more difficult than it has to be. And I'm not so sure when my kids were learning grammar that they were learning grammar. I think I was learning grammar and I was just dragging them along because I found it fascinating to make sense of some things that I knew or some things that I didn't know. Or even I noticed sitting up in the back here, I I have a a little piece of paper I printed for myself about connecting clauses because I'm constantly unsure of when to use a semicolon and my kids use semicolons quite regularly. But yeah, so the kiss grammar, no, we never read the larger stories. We do any of the extra work. It was as if it was an exercise. You know, if you got a, I'm thinking like analytic grammar that they have sample sentences in there, you don't even are coming from. I just know that uh, Dr. Evavra really wanted to use quality literature when he was developing his exercises and he went to what were public domain books of, of that literary quality that he wanted and he used those. So I don't even think had some sense, although I know sometimes my kids have been inspired in, in the upper levels, I guess. I think there were sentences from Great Expectations and one of my kids thought, oh, that sounds like a fun book to read. And I think they tracked down an audio book of it, actually. My daughter hated that book. That turned her off to Dickens forever. She still read Dickens because I made her, because I forced her to read that book. Yeah. That's my least favorite one of his, actually. And I, I think that that's something really to keep in mind about um, completely off of Kiss Grammar. But, you know, if your child really doesn't like a book, it's not always the best thing to force them through it, to make them, you know, there are times where we want our children to read a book or to work through this because we want them to learn perseverance, right? But there's also a time and a place for that because by forcing her to go through that book when it wasn't necessary. It was just that I felt like I had to follow the curriculum or the books that were set by whatever class she was taking. But anyways, I had it in my head that she had to read that book. And because of that, like I said, she she won't even consider reading Dickens anymore. So there's value in sometimes telling our kids, I know you don't like this, but this is something that we need to work through. But there's also value in saying, you know, there's hundreds, thousands of high quality books out there. If we hate this one, then we'll find something else. Yeah, I definitely allowed a lot, especially as my children got 
into the upper forms definitely allowed them a lot more say in the books that they chose to read or not read. And not that I didn't say like, this is the only good one I have and I think this is important. So we're going to work, but there's so many books. That's why we have the options page, right? There's, there's so many good books that it's not working. It's okay to find something else if you can. Yeah. That goes for Kiss Grammar too. <laughs> yeah. That goes for any of this stuff, really. If something's not working, you know, give it a fair try. But if it's not working, then switch, change, do something. Figure out if your kids hate what you're doing, if they hate their lessons, then there is something wrong. Well, and even like my son, we did not do grammar with my oldest son. He's my third child because he has severe, severe dysgraphia. So, you know, he couldn't understand. He couldn't even, he couldn't even get his thoughts out onto paper properly. And so for us to even try and talk about some of that was just so frustrating, so overwhelming for him that that we didn't do much beyond my giving him the parts of speech so that we had at least a way to talk about some of what he was struggling with. You know, you have no verb in the sentence. There's no action happening in the sentence. And and he took an academic writing class at university. He did have accommodations, but he did really well in it. So your kids can do well if if you don't get around to doing grammar. Yeah. I love grammar. I would highly encourage you to do grammar. Grammar is lovely and fascinating and can make us wordsmiths and, and it's fun. It can be really fun, but, but we all have a lot to do. And I guess one of the things that I want to do is try to ease parents' burden. If it's really, really a struggle for you and it's making life really unpleasant, then I'm the first one to say that your child cannot do grammar and will still have an okay adult life. Right. How does it affect your home atmosphere because that's what your kids are going to remember right and that's what you're going to remember was this always a, a place of struggle and tension or was this a place of acceptance and safety and that's not just physical safety or emotional safety but academic too all right i have another question that miriam will maybe be able to answer and you because you have an amazing book on this, but it was, what do you do in the early years to create rhythm? That could be a couple of podcasts. It is. Yes. So if you were to pick, if you were to pick three things that you think it was important to do to, to get a rhythm in the early years, what three things? I'm going to have Miriam go first because I don't want to taint what she's going to say. I want to hear what she's going to say first. I would say listen to workers. Uh, throughout your day, food, also simplicity. Get any harder on yourself or your children than, than you have to. And make sure you work with, your, if you are someone who needs downtime, quiet time, I'm, I have a very wild daughter and she takes up a lot of space. And I had to find a way to make that work for both of us. And, and we did. It's took a while to get out, but once we did, it was a lot smoother. Those, those would be my three things. Now I'm wishing I had gone first because you're <laughs> so much better. <laughs> um, so I would say my first thing um, is those anchors. And by the anchors, it's um, sleeping times and eating times. Regular times for sleeping and eating. Now that is naps, but mostly that's your bedtime. They should have a consistent bedtime. And by consistent, it doesn't mean if you set their bedtime at 7.30 and you don't get them into bed until 7.35 or 7.40 that you've just ruined everything. I mean, you can go 10, 20 minutes on either side. Um, and working towards that consistency, 
you don't need to be perfect right away. It's all a process. So um, having that, the, the consistent bedtime with the bedtime routine leading up to it, you never want to just say, and I'm guilty of this, so because we've completely lost our routines in the last two weeks, and I'm completely guilty right now of saying, okay, it's time for bed um, with no warning, and it doesn't work well. But so what you don't want to do is say, okay, it's time for bed. You want, you could say, okay, it's time for our bedtime routine. And then you have that lead up into bedtime, whatever that, that routine consists of. If that's um, getting your, getting nightgowns on, getting washed up, um, brushing teeth, reading a story. But so they have that wind down time. Um, and the eating times, so the consistent eating times and this is one thing that I really really struggle with because we like to be outside it, it feels it feels strange to be cooking dinner when it's still really light out and the sun's still high in the sky um, so summers are really hard for me getting dinner on the table at a consistent time um, but eating and sleeping at consistent times those are the big things and then taking out electronics I think that's that's huge, especially for your young ones. Um, it's so easy to just let them play on a tablet or turn on the TV. Um, but having a simple routine is so much easier when you don't have the kids whining to watch TV or to play on the computer. Um, so I would take those out. And if you are a really high electronic use family. Some people find that going cold turkey works best. And you're going to have to put up with whining for um, a week or two because they're going to ask for it all the time if you go cold turkey. And even if you don't go cold turkey, if you set specific limits around it, like we'll watch one TV show after dinner, um, you're still going to have whining during the day until the kids get used to this is our new normal. But I would say that's a big thing because that will help them slow down because the TV, um, the, those electronics, at least in our family, they really make both the kids and the adults kind of on edge. And I don't even, it's not something that I notice on a day-to-day -day basis until we get away from electronics. And then I see how very much calmer my daughter is and how much calmer my husband and I are actually. Um, so I would say limiting TV and um, electronics, having those anchor points, then doing a weekly rhythm, um, having a specific day of this is going to be the day that we paint. And it doesn't have to be like an entire afternoon two or three hours of painting. It can be, we're going to get out the paints after lunch, and if we only paint for five minutes because then you get bored of it and you want to go outside and play, that's fine too. But they have that anchor or that, that sense in their head of this day is painting day and this day is baking day. And even if you skip some weeks here and there, like my daughter just actually just last week, she said, um, can we bake today? And I said, no, because it's 114 degrees. And I'm not going to turn on the oven. <laughs> and she said, but today's baking day. Um, 
so having those in your your week, you know, it doesn't have to be somebody else's schedule. It could be um, baking or cooking with your kids, making soup, something like that. It could be maybe there's a day that you guys wash the windows because the kids get out the spray bottles and you get out the rags and they get to wash the windows with you. It could be painting. It could be um, a day for doing handwork in the afternoon. It could be the so if it's if it's in the summer, it might be the day that you go to the pool. Every week on thir on Thursdays you go to the pool. Um, something like that. So that's the three big things that I would say. Um, getting your anchors, your sleeping and eating anchors, limiting TV and electronics, and getting a weekly rhythm of, and it doesn't have to be every single day you do something. Maybe it's only Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But maybe Monday is painting day, Wednesday is baking day, and Friday is swimming day or errands or something like that. That's what I would say. Awesome. Can I do one more? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would say um, actions. Have of yourself and your children. Because some days even do everything right. In rhythm and everything goes, there's still going to be melt. And you're still going to, what have I done wrong? It's not. You haven't done anything wrong. And your mom and they're with you all day. And it's hard. It is very And even if you've done something like we've, we did the uh, helping my dishes and cleaning. And even though that was a part of our daily lives, too, and they've done it for years, we still have days when they, <laughs> most of the time they do it, habits are strong. But that doesn't mean you fail being human, your children and yourself. I would, I would say remember that. Remember. I will also add, yeah, bringing them into your daily chores. You know, we tend to say, we need to use TV so that I can have 30 minutes so that I can clean the kitchen or so that I can get this done. But if you bring them into it, it doesn't matter. One thing that we need to get out of our heads, and this is really was really hard for me also, was I have this list of tasks that I need to accomplish. But it's not about accomplishing the task. It's about nourishing our children and ourselves. So sing while you're folding laundry. Let them fold the towels and the washcloths. Um, and it's okay if they don't fold things perfectly. And um, it's okay if it takes three times as long because we don't, what we want to get out of the habit of is rushing through things. It's okay if all you do all day is spending time with your littles and you're hanging laundry and you're folding laundry. And actually, I don't ever, I use the dryer like three times a year. So I'm actually serious that we hang the laundry outside, but it's Arizona and it, everything dries really fast. So um, hanging laundry and folding laundry and washing the dishes and give, you can give them a sink of their own suds or a tub with their own suds or they can help you wash and maybe later you go back and you rinse them a little bit better because they still had a lot of suds on them. Um, but it's think soul nourishment, not tasks accomplished. I think one of the Waldorf people said that. I can't think of her name, but that's just always stuck with me is it's not about how many, how many tasks you, you cross off your list. It's about the connection that you're building with your kids. And that's, that's a, 
a little secret to a little bit less mess if they're with you. They <laughs> yeah, that's true too. <laughs> yeah, I confess to um, where my kids were, I was, and where I was, my kids were, just because there were five of them. They could destroy something very quickly in no time at all. So that's our hour up. We usually end with a nature minute. My nature minute this week is that we, I have a friend who runs a community supported farm and we bought into her shares this year. And so every week I get two or three bags full of homegrown organic vegetables. I'm going out to visit the farm next week because tragically he was at our homeschool co-op and he asked how many people had pulled a carrot out of the ground and and my daughter was the only one who didn't raise her hand. I was horrified. I know that my older ones have done that because we, we grew vegetables in the backyard and all that. But, but she's my youngest one. And with my older ones moving on, it got harder too. And our summers look different with um, so many of them at summer jobs and doing that kind of stuff. And I was just, I was so embarrassed. So anyways, I bought a farm share and we're going out to pick beans and canned beans next, next week. And my daughter, I don't know if she'll get to pull a carrot out, but she'll at least get to see what a working farm, vegetable farm looks like. And so I'm very excited about that. What's my nature minute? That's awesome. We pulled carrots out of the ground last week and we ate them, but they were really bitter. Um, so we each only had one and then we set them aside. And then my husband asked me yesterday, should we just throw these out? And I said, no, those are our homegrown carrots. And he said, but they're all shriveled and dried up. And I said, well, I'm trying to think of some place that I could put them into a dish because they're homegrown, but something that would disguise their flavor because they're also really bitter. So that so we did get to dig up carrots though. We dug up carrots and beets. Awesome. Let's see. So right now our nature minute is um, we're having rain, kind of. Rain is all around us. We're under a severe thunderstorm watch, but the sky is pretty clear blue with just some wispy clouds. And I actually don't think uh, we're going to get any rain out of this. But the animals and the insects think that we're going to get rain. And so the ants are out. Um, oh, what do they call it when they the new queens come out and they start migrating and flying and making their own new mounds? I don't know what it's called, but that's what they're doing right now. So my daughter just got bit by a ton of ants. Hydrocortisone cream works actually pretty good on ant bites. That's what I found out today. Miriam. So we, we went over to my husband's parents' house last week, my daughter's birthday. And they have this beautiful garden in the back. They're, they're at our old house. And I like that when we lived here, they've made it completely beautiful. Uh, but my father-in-law, he's been growing corn, the native to here. It actually, he grew up with it in Korea and found the seeds and he planted this beautiful, beautiful rainbow colored that he grew up with. My daughter was very excited. Every time we arrived, they just drop off their bags and they go in the back and they pick this basket full of stuff in the garden. And she was so excited. She loved everything rainbow. So then with this beautiful basket of rainbow corn and that was for her birthday dip, just like gracious on her plate. She was so excited. It was, it was interesting to try that. It's different flavor, not quite as sweet, but wonderfully I had never had it before. That's wonderful. Rebecca, do you have anything to add for Nature Minute? Or Nikki? No? Okay, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us today, everybody.
Thank you for listening to the Wildwood Curriculum Podcast, Stone Chats. For more information about our free secular and inclusive curriculum based on the works of 19th century educator Charlotte Mason, please visit us at wildwoodcurriculum.org.